Hello and welcome to Rising with the Tide. I'm Skander, as always joined by Jamie. And today we have Zachary Foster, historian of Palestine and author of the newsletter Palestine in Your Inbox with us. Zach, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, thanks. How are you? Good. Thanks again so, so much for coming on the show. I mean, you're you're actually the first person we've had twice on. Obviously, with current events, this is as necessary as ever. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm really glad that you're with us. Um, I think your work has been wonderful. And, you know, I think that the the amount of work and the quality of your work, especially over the past two months, as well, today is December 21st. So the uh, war uh, in Gaza, the, the ongoing ethnic cleansing campaign and, and genocide has been uh, ongoing for two and a half months now. The level and quality of your work has been absolutely astounding in combating misinformation, uh, informing people, and kind of just teaching us about really what has happened and what is happening. So yeah, I want to say thank you for that. And again, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much again for those very kind words. Really, really appreciate that. Let's just start with a little introduction. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself so that, you know, anyone who's not familiar with your previous episode, which, uh, by the way, was about a year ago. It was called uh, What's in the Name? The Invention and History of Palestine. So that's our first episode with Zach. If you want to learn a bit more about Palestinian identity, uh, his work and early 20th century history, uh, please go do listen to, to that one. We'll be talking about slightly different topics today. But I think that was a, a really, really good uh discussion as well so yeah please tell our, our public a little bit more about yourself well maybe i can start with my research on palestinian history so i did a phd in palestinian history focusing on the origins of a palestinian identity in the late ottoman period as well as a history of the idea of palestine the word the concept uh, of palestine when did people use that word in history in what context and for what reasons and th that is basically my dissertation. Um, over the past couple of years, I've tried to focus a, a lot more on trying to make academic research on Palestine more accessible to broader audiences. And so I've been doing that on, on Twitter or X. I've been doing that in my newsletter, Palestine in Your Inbox. I've been doing that on YouTube. I've been doing that on, um, I guess now Instagram. Uh, you gotta you gotta be on all the platforms, right? So just just trying to. Um, you know, what, trying to make this conflict that everyone seems to believe is "quote unquote" complicated, um, trying to actually um, demystify it, trying to make it um, actually uh, um, more more palatable, more accessible, more understandable. That that's really, I would say, my my focus over the past couple of years. I think a really good place to start would be if you could maybe give us a, a if if possible, short refresher on. Um, the topic of the formation formation of the Palestinian identity, because it, I think it's a very interesting um, topic in its own right, but it might help give a bit of context as we go further into this discussion today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the Palestinian identity that we know and love today uh, first <clears throat> got its, um, you know, I would say dates to the late 19th century. So we're talking about a time period, Ottoman Palestine, in which um, there are many new schools opening up around the empire, including in in Palestine. You have a Russian teachers training seminar, a seminary open up in uh, Nazareth in the 1880s. You have the St. George's School in Jerusalem opening up in the early 20th century. You have French missionary schools opening up in Jaffa and Jerusalem and, 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 and Haifa and elsewhere. The Germans open up a number of schools. So do the Americans. Um, and so 
and, and sort of the Ottomans, of course. The Ottoman Empire is also expanding state education. Um, and so you have a number of Mulkia schools open up in, in Ottoman Palestine. And I think it's really in these schools where you start to see young pupils uh, identify as Palestinian. And I think the reasons are pretty obvious. They're being taught with textbooks called The History of Palestine and the Geography of Palestine. Um, the, the, there are maps of Palestine circulating in the schools. There are um, uh, <clears throat> atlases that include many maps of Palestine in them. Um, it's also in these schools where students are being taken out of their home environments. Um, they, they are uh, shipped off to boarding schools where they're able to explore new identities. Um, they're taken around the Holy Land. They're taken on trips to the Holy Land, uh, to, to different holy sites in, in, in the, Ga the Sea of Galilee in Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Um, and so it's because of all of these, um, I think the educational institutions, the schools play a huge role in explaining how it is and why it is that the first Palestinians um, who, uh, who start to identify as Palestinians. And, and the first three I would mention in particular are Khalil Beda, Salim Kobain, and Najib Nasad um, in 1898, 1901, and 1901, respectively. And then by the, um, by the first decade and a half of, of the 20th century, by 1914, the word Palestinian, Philistini, or the word Palestinians, the plural, Philistinian, um, those words appear in um, more than 120 uh, different articles and books and magazines um, in in that first decade and a half of the 20th century. Um, and maybe I'll pause there. Yeah, I think um, that this whole like subject is so, so interesting because it also goes against a lot of what we've been told about Palestine and about Israel, about the, the uh, so-called non-existence of the Palestinian identity until um, the state of Israel came about, which, you know, uh, as your PhD uh, writings and, and and others have demonstrated is absolutely false. So I think super interesting topic. And, and again, if you want to hear more about this, please do go and check out the first episode we did with Zach. Um, that's where, where we learned uh, a lot of what we know today about Palestine, me and Jamie, for sure. Um, so maybe let's dive right into the, the history of the occupation then. Um, so I don't really know where you want to start because like I know that a lot of people consider the history of the occupation of that that word as like sometimes they consider it to be um you know 48 after the Nakba. Some some people consider it to be like already, you know, with the the British uh mandate of, of Palestine, the, the Balfour Declaration. I feel like there's different kind of ideas of where it starts. Um, so maybe you can tell us about, about like where you like to start when you talk about the occupation of Palestine and why, and then maybe we can go in a little bit into some of the major uh, chapters, let's say. That is a great question. Should we start the occupation of Palestine beginning in 48 or 67? Um, I think from the point of view of the international legal community, from the point of view of international law, um, it probably makes more sense to start in 67. Uh, although, of course, it's important to remember that from 48 until 1966, the Israeli government imposed military rule on the Palestinians living inside Israel. And so I, and, and now you have a number of scholars writing about how it was that military system imposed on the Palestinian citizens of Israel from 48 to 66 that was then repurposed and reapplied mm. to the Palestinians living in Gaza, the West Bank after 67. So there are, uh, I think it's important to remember that there's a very like a through line here. 
Um, but but nevertheless, I mean, I, I do think it is probably makes more sense when talking about the origins of, especially when thinking about how we uh, got to uh, how we got to October seventh, twenty twenty three. Um, I I do I do think um, maybe sixty seven is a good starting point. Um, but uh, but but yeah, so 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 basically, Israel in the June nineteen sixty seven war uh, um, takes over and imposes a military occupation on Gaza and the West Bank, and. Um, and for the first 20 years of that military military occupation, uh, from 1967 until 1987, uh, Israel imposes a brutal military occupation on Palestinians living in those occupied territories. And so for 20 years, Israel is killing, on average, something like 32 Palestinians every year. Um, Israel is also demolishing uh, homes uh, every year for 20 mm -hmm. years. Um, on average, we're talking about uh, 25,000 Palestinians get arrested every year for 20 years. On average, Israel is confiscating tens of thousands of hectares of Palestinian land every year for 20 years. Um, Israel is, of course, denying Palestinians basic political rights. They do not have the right to organize 10 people for a political purpose. Um, if they do, they can be arrested um, and put in jail without cause, without even being told why they're being put in jail. Um, mm. it, of course, Israel also is imposing a suffocating permit regime on Palestinians in the occupied territories. It is very difficult to start a business. It is very difficult to um, install a water pump, um, to deepen an existing water well, to plant a citrus tree, uh, to grow cucumbers and tomatoes. All of these things are regulated by Israeli occupation forces. Um, and, 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 and all of this is for very explicit reasons. Um, Israel does not want Palestinians in the occupied territories to compete with Israelis um, you know, in, in the economic sphere. Um, and so they impose all of these draconian regulations um, through the permit regime on Palestinians in the occupied territories. Um, they're, of course, also denying Palestinians the right to wave a Palestinian flag. Uh, they're denying Palestinians uh, uh, the right to paint a painting using red, green, black, and white. Um, of course, that would be violent uh, to, to use those four colors in a painting. And in fact, one Palestinian, uh, Fatih Rabban, even sat six months in prison in 1982 for using those four colors in a painting. Um, so we're talking about uh, an occupation that is denying Palestinians basic political rights, the right to have a say in the in the government that controls their lives, in the military, um, that is suffocating their economy. Um, and so I think that really sets the stage for what happens after, for uh, the first Intifada and, of course, the Azal process and everything that has happened since then. And uh, I guess just um, one of the things I've heard most uh, around, I guess, on, on the Internet, but also on mainstream media and, and, and such being repeated, um, because you, you mentioned the kind of permit system, things like this. Um, and I was wondering maybe if we can just very quickly kind of touch on that, because it's something I haven't heard discussed much personally. Has been the idea that like Palestinians are able to get, or at least some are able to get uh, permits to go work in Israel. Um, and I feel like this is a point that has not really been developed much. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what this like permit regime system is and, and in actuality, what it allows and what it doesn't allow? Yeah, so the permit regime is um, a regime of permits numbering in the many hundreds, there's over a hundred uh, different types of permits that are required to do different things in the occupied Palestinian territories. So for example, if you are a Palestinian farmer in Gaza and you wanna uh, plant some citrus trees, some orange trees, um, it, it, on average from 67 to 87, it would take five years to get that permit, okay? To plant a tree, to build a, a, a farm, yeah. to be able to sell citrus 
um, uh, to be able to sell oranges, which is you know one of historically one of Palestine's most important uh, export crops. Um, you would need a permit. So is this in the West Bank and Gaza? This is in the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, for example, um, <clears throat> there was a, a I believe it was a dairy uh, there was a dairy farm that wanted to uh, uh, um, you know build basically like in the West Bank. I think it was near Ramallah in, in the 1980s. They wanted to um, you know build a dairy farm. They were denied a permit to do that. Um, the vast majority of, of, of per permits, uh, uh, permit applications to dig new water wells in the West Bank are denied. Um, the, the vast majority uh, 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 of uh, Palestinians trying to also fish in the in the coast, in the sea, in the Mediterranean mm -hmm. Sea, those permits are also denied. Um, so basically, you need permits to do um, to to. To, to conduct economic activities, to start businesses, to dig water wells, um, you know, to open up a dairy farm, to grow certain uh, crops. Like I said, uh, cucumbers and vegetables. Israel uh, did not want Palestinian farmers to be growing crops in the in the occupied territories in Gaza and the West Bank that they would then import to Israel and put Israeli businesses uh, uh, out of business. The Israel did not want that. And so they restricted what could be imported into Israel. Meanwhile, Israeli firms were exporting their crops into Gaza and the West Bank, suffocating uh, uh, Palestinian firms in those places because they couldn't they, they couldn't then export their crops into uh, uh, to sell into the Israeli market. Um, and then, of course, all the permits related to political activity, right? So if you want to organize a protest in the West Bank or in Gaza for these first 20 years, you need a permit, which was, of course, almost always denied um, because any kind of political activity, um, any type of organization, uh, political parties, um, meetings, uh, protests, sit-ins, this is all illegal. You do not have political rights under occupation. You um, So this is, of course, all made illegal. And then on top of all that, you have all the permits related to kind of family reunification. So if you are a Palestinian in, let's say, in Israel proper, in Jaffa, um, and you have immediate family, you, your wife, your brother, your sister, your mother, your kids, they're based in Gaza or the West Bank after 1967, you are denied a permit to reunite with your family members. Um, and of course, the reasons are obvious. Israel does not want more Palestinians to be moving into Israel. That would be contrary to the whole concept of Israel, which is to ensure Jewish domination and Jewish uh, uh, development and Jewish prosperity. And so the very fact that a Palestinian would enter Israel is already a problem. The, the mere existence of a Palestinian in Israel is a problem for Israel. It creates a demographic threat for the Jewish majority, um, which is necessary to ensure Jewish domination and Jewish, uh, uh, um, you know, and, and the Jewish right of return and Jewish prosperity and Jewish development. All of these Palestinians are a problem for all of these uh, things. Um, so the permanent regime is, is multi-layered. Again, affecting Palestinian economy, Palestinian politics, Palestinian families. Um, it's very, and the whole purpose is is basically to make it difficult as a Palestinian to compete with Israeli firms in, inside Israel. Um, to make it very difficult to express any kind of political uh, activity whatsoever, and then of course to make it very difficult for Palestinians to reunite with their families uh, inside Israel proper. So these extremely suppressive and destructive policies were at least being tolerated by like supranational bodies like the UN. I'd really like to hear from you in a, in a comparative sense, what the sort of initial relationship uh, Palestine and the Palestinian peoples had with supranational, supranational bodies like the League of Nations and the UN. And sort of, was there ever a degree of sort of recognition for Palestine as a state and for Palestinian identity? And if so, what changed so that these uh, suppressive and destructive policies would were were tolerated and allowed? 
Well, it was the League of Nations in 1922 that affirmed the British Mandate for Palestine, right? The British Mandate for Palestine that um, embraced uh, Jewish immigration uh, um, and Zionist uh, immigration and Zionist land purchases in Palestine from the 1920s all the way to 1948. So the international community, as uh, uh, represented by the League of uh, the League of Nations, affirmed Zionism, uh, affirmed Zionist immigration, uh, legalized it in, in, in a sense, um, essentially also at the same time that they legalized uh, Zionist immigration in violation of the political will of the overwhelming majority of Palestine's inhabitants. At the same time they did that, they denied the Palestinians have a national identity to begin with. The, of course, the, the Balfour Declaration, as well as the entire British mandate for Palestine in the first place, does not offer any political rights to Palestine's Arab majority. They're not even called uh, Palestinian Arabs in the British Mandate for Palestine. Yeah, they don't even mention them. <laughs> they're, they're just the non-Jewish inhabitants, right? Um, yeah. As if the 85% majority of the country can just be sort of dismissed. I mean, this is very much part of the kind of imperial and colonial legacies that we've inherited in the modern world, which is that indigenous peoples um, you know, uh, are, are, are not given the same rights as, as their colonial overlords. Um, or by extension, the Zionists that they empower. Um, so, the League of Nations, and then, uh, and then, if you go to to 1937, um, you have the Peel Commission, um, which which is a British report. So it's not 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 League of Nations, but but nevertheless, we're talking about a British mandate that was um, was was given legitimacy by the League of Nations. The Peel Commission says um, calls. Uh, Proposes a solution to, the, to 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 this conflict in Palestine, right? By 1937, Jews and Palestinians are basically at war with one another. There's this open revolt. Palestinians are in open revolt. Um, uh, you know, uh, using um force to try and bring an end to a policy of of their own dispossession, and so they revolt. And the Peel Commission says we have a we have a great idea. We have a potential solution, uh, to this conflict in Palestine. It's called transfer. You know, the Peel Commission proposed transfer. That is to say, in, in 2023, uh, transfer uh, translates, uh, the word we use today is ethnic cleansing. Um, but at the time, it was politely known as transfer. Um, and then, of course, if you go, you know, fast forward a decade in 1947, when the British uh, decide to leave Palestine, they hand over Palestine to um, uh, to the United Nations. They let the United Nations decide uh, the fate of Palestine. And uh, the UN says, we're going to divide Palestine into two states, um, it, it, or it calls for the partition of Palestine into two states. One state, the Jewish state, that gets 55% uh, of the land, um, even though the Jews only constituted about a third of the population of Palestine, and they only owned about 5 to 6% of the land of Palestine. Nevertheless, they got 55% of the country, according to this partition plan. Whereas the Palestinians, who had been denied political rights uh, for 30 years, despite being the overwhelming majority, who had been denied even the right to be called Palestinian Arabs for 30 years, even though, as we said, they constituted the majority, they got 45% of the land, even though they owned the vast majority of the country, and even though they were two-thirds of the population. Um, and so, lo and behold, wow, surprise, surprise, the Palestinians rejected this plan. The other thing to, to note about this plan was that the Jewish state, that the Jewish state, uh, according to this partition plan, would have a Palestinian minority of like 40 to 45 percent. So even in the area allotted to the Jews, the Palestinians were nearly half of the population. So obviously, this plan made no sense to Palestinians. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so they obviously rejected it. Um, but again, it, it's a sort of a, a reincarnation of, of the partition plan.
uh, of 37 with the British partition plan of 37. Uh, that's what you get in 47 with the United Nations. Um, I think after the war ended, you start to see the international community as represented by the United Nations come out with resolutions that make a little bit more sense than the partition plan. Um, and a little bit more sense than the Peel Commission report, and a little bit more sense than the 1922 League of Nations mandate. Um, you get Resolution 242, uh, um, and uh, uh, you know you, you start to and Resolution 18 was it 186, um, basically uh, calling on Israel to um, you know that uh, the, that that uh, to to allow the Palestinian refugees a right of return. This is enshrined in international law, right? That refugees have the right to return to their homes after a war. This is one of the most important principles of international law. It, it's it, which is all about protecting civilians, um, which is all about ensuring that civilians are not harmed. In, in armed conflicts. Um, and of course, that includes civil uh, refugees uh, made by a war. So um, so I think in the aftermath of 1948, you start to see, um, I think, more um, s more sensible uh, UN resolutions, certainly more sensible than, than the partition plan of 47. And do you think that these more sensible resolutions kind of coincide a little bit with the fact that the imperial powers, while obviously still omnipresent in the UN in, in supranational bodies like the UN are kind of uh, bit by bit, I guess, <laughs> allowing some of the other countries in the world to join these ranks and to start like meddling in these affairs. And I, I guess you see more and more of this um, kind of global community approach to um, to the I guess, to the debate around Israel-Palestine and do you think that that's maybe why like more Arab countries, for example, getting involved and up to, I guess, what we see today with, where like 95, 98 plus percent of the General Assembly of the UN like votes regularly uh, for the right to return and for like the, a peaceful resolution to the Palestine uh, conflict? I, I would say that much of the corpus that constitutes international humanitarian law was established in the aftermath of World War II. It was actually mm -hmm. the Holocaust, you know, the 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 mass murder, the, the genocide of six million Jews and 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 millions of others, uh, that led the United States uh, together with most of Western Europe uh, to embrace these new, um, you know, the Hague Conventions, the um, <clears throat> the Geneva Conventions of '48, right? These really form uh, some of the bases of, of international humanitarian law today. Of course, the Declaration um, was it the 1948 Declaration of. Uh, the rights of of man. I forget exactly the name of that declaration, but um, you have all of these really critical pieces of international humanitarian law form in the aftermath of World War II. I think in part as a reaction to what happened during World War II. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and so I think that is probably the main reason. Of course, this is also coinciding with the end of empire, the uh, the British and the French and the and, and, and the German empires are kind of winding down. They're, they're abandoning their colonial possessions. Um, this is also they're switching into neo-colonial. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Uh, instead of direct colonial rule, they shift to more indirect colonial rule. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think you see this most um, most predominantly among among the French colonies, especially in Africa, where they basically continue to dominate these countries, uh, controlling their currencies, um, uh, you know, controlling their economies. Um, uh, 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 but 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 yeah, give up like direct colonial uh, domination. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to make a really, really quick note also, um, because you mentioned the British partition plans and also the British um, uh, kind of will to create the state of Israel quite early on in the 20th century. I think one of the like turning points 
I guess I'm speaking personally for me in my understanding of the conflict has been, for example, through books like The Hundred Years War uh, by Rashid Khalidi, for example, understanding the scale of anti-Semitism in British society, especially and world powers at that time in the early 20th century, and how that motivated uh, their alliance with Zionist forces, like, for example, Theodore Herzl or Jabotinsky. Um, and and I, I mean, for me, it was like this kind of eureka moment a little bit of understanding how, how people who hate a people uh, and people who are ethno-nationalist can can work together in a way because one doesn't want you here and the other wants a place with just his own. Um, and so I think, yeah, I, I guess, could you maybe talk a little bit more about um, if, if you kind of uh, know about this a bit, how the, how anti-Semitism actually kind of pushed people to have this uh, Israeli nation so that I guess the British didn't have to accept uh, Jews, which they openly stated, you know, after the war that they, did not want i think it was the alien exclusion act or something like this yeah yeah you're you're exactly right there was a marriage of convenience an alliance between uh, the zionists um and the anti-semitic christians in europe and this dates back long before the 20th century as early as 1878 the guy who was actually credited uh, with even first coming up with the term anti-semitism was a hungarian politician um, and in 1878, he gives this speech in the Hungarian parliament uh, calling for the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. Um, and the reason was very simple. He was very explicit about it. Then there was a need to eliminate the Jewish threat in Hungary and his solution to eliminating, to removing these Jewish parasites in his mind uh, was the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. That, we, that way we could get rid of all of these uh, uh, filthy, dirty Jews from Hungary and move them all to Palestine. Um, so that was 1878. And that line of thinking really carries through all the way to the present day, almost 160 years uh, 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 through line. In 1881, the German journalist uh, uh, Wilhelm Marr, um, excuse me, he is actually the one that popularizes the term anti-Semitism. Um, mm -hmm. he, he basically tries to kind of get Europeans to rethink anti-Semitism, um, kind of uh, away from a more religious-based anti-Semitism, believing that Jews killed Christ, more to a racial anti-Semitism, um, that Jews are a race. This is, you know, re recall that we're talking 1880s racial uh, science is, is, is kind of uh, in, experiencing a heyday in Europe at the time. But he basically says, and, and this is actually a direct quote, he says, quote, I will guarantee that our anti-Semitic movement will obtain Palestine a second time for the Jews. He, he, he explicitly bundles Zionism and anti-Semitism. Um, the German uh, emperor, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, in 1898, also declares his support uh, for, uh, for Zionism because it, uh, uh, it, again, it would rid the Jew, it would rid Europe of the Jews, um, the same Jews who killed our savior. Um, th and then, of course, as you correctly pointed out, in 1905, the most famous Zionist of all, Arthur, placed restrictions on Jews immigrating to Great Britain at a time when, by the thousands in pogroms. It was at that time that he said, you know what, um, we're going to close off Britain to Jews. Again, for, for, for exactly the same reasons that, um, you know, uh, Jews are filthy and we don't want them in Britain. 
Um, so he was driven by the same anti-Semitism that all that the German emperor, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm was, and the Hungarian politician Istosi was. So again, it, it, there's a long, tired uh, uh, history of, 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 of alliances between Jews and anti-Semites, between Zionists and anti-Semites. And the final thing I would say here is that the thinking around anti-Semitism leaked into Zionists' own worldview. I mean, I don't think this is a surprise. Like, you know, they internalized this Jew hatred. The Zionists themselves, many of the early Zionists, like Theodor Herzl, like Arthur Rupin, like Max Nordu, like J.F. Dabotinsky, they all internalized this anti-Semitism and had awful things to say about Jews themselves, right? This is why they were Zionists. It was to remake the Jew, the, the Jew from this filthy, you know, uh, um, <clears throat> person, uh, from this despicable person who, who you know, was diseased, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, who, who was mocked, who was weak. They want to remake this weak uh, Jew of Europe into a strong Zionist who has control over their destiny. They themselves, the Zionists were themselves, were some of the greatest anti-Semites of all. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, you make an excellent point, uh, um, that Zionism and anti-Semitism have a rich history of coexistence and of mutual embrace. The siege of, uh, Gaza as a principal area of occupation has in recent months escalated to sort of horrific levels of violence and loss of human life. But I think something that is often overlooked in the media is that this siege has been underway for years. I mean, like about a million children have been born into this siege. That's how long it's been going on for. So I'd really like to learn from you a bit more about sort of how the siege actually started and why has this been such a focused area of conflict? Yeah, so I think really the origins of the siege and the blockade on Gaza go back long before 2007 when uh, the official siege was imposed. Um, you can really date the policy, I think going all the way back to 1991. In 1991, um, the Israeli government changed its policies uh, on allowing Palestinians from the occupied West Bank and the occupied Gaza Strip. They changed their policies. Um, before 1991, any Palestinian in Gaza or the West Bank uh, could find work in Israel and basically move relatively easily and freely between the territories in Israel proper. In 1991, Israel passed a new law. They changed this general permit that allowed anyone to enter Israel to a, an individual permit. And beginning in 1991, every Palestinian now needed an individual permit to enter Israel. Without that individual permit, they were not allowed to work in Israel. So after 20 years of, of Israel making the Palestinians in the occupied territories dependent on the Israeli labor market for work, then they said, then they pulled the rug from underneath them and said, actually, you know what, just kidding, you're not allowed to come to Israel for work anymore. Um, and that was really the beginning of the policies of, uh, of that later became known as the closure policies in Israel. Um, and so really, uh, you know, starting then and really, uh, I would say beginning in the 19, the mid 1990s in 1995, six and seven and eight, it got real bad. But you had periods of unemployment that reached 70 percent in Gaza. That's a higher unemployment rate than the post 2007 uh, unemployment rates in Gaza. That's so the, the period of kind of. 70% of Gazans were unemployed during periods of peak yeah. uh, uh, closure in, in 96 and 97 because they all had been made dependent on the Israeli labor market for work. And then when Israel locked down Palestinians in Gaza, imposed a closure on them and put checkpoints at the entrance and exit of every single Palestinian town and village in the West Bank and Gaza, they led. this led to catastrophic uh, unemployment rates. Uh, so high, like I said, higher than even in the post-2006 period. 
So that's really the origins of this policy. Mm-hmm. And it just got worse and worse and worse over the years. Um, of course, it's not a straight line, but you know, it, there were peaks and troves. Um, but basically, that policy continued uh, in 96 and 97, 98. There was maybe a brief respite in, 97, in 99 uh, and 2000. But then during the second intifada, um, again, same thing happened. 2001, 2003, Israel locks down Gaza and the West Bank, preventing Palestinians from moving, uh, preventing them from, from importing and exporting anything. Um, and then, of course, I think to, to, to really understand the origins of the, of the, the, the siege and the blockade beginning in June 2007, you have to uh, go back to really December two thousand, uh, excuse me, January two thousand six, when Hamas wins a free and fair election, an election that was promoted by the United States, right? This is recall George Bush, right? Democracy, rah rah. We want to spread democracy around the Middle East. So yeah. George Bush and Condoleezza Rice call for an election in Palestine. And the Palestinians are like, great, let's do an election. And then Hamas wins. Um, and uh, and Jimmy uh, course, Carter says it was fair. <laughs> I mean, it was the. It, according to uh, uh, international uh, uh, human, human rights observers, this was, quote, the most fair election in the entire Middle East, including oh elections God. in Israel proper. I mean, it really okay. was a fair election. Um, yeah. And Hamas won. They won a very thin, they won a plurality of votes, not a, um, I believe. Um, um, and it was a thin, it was, it was, it was a narrow, they won by a narrow margin. Um, but they nevertheless won a plurality of, of legislative seats in the Palestinian a legislative council, the PLC. Um, and then what, what happens after that, basically, is that the United States doesn't like the result. And so what they do is they uh, they um, meet with Mahmoud uh, Dahlan, who is Fatah's security official um, in Gaza. They meet with him and they're like, listen, um, you, you, you got to put an end to these Hamas people. They give him arms, they fund him, and they support him. And they say, uh, basically, go eliminate Hamas. And so then there's a civil, what lo and behold, Hamas doesn't just like lay down their arms, they fight back. And so basically you get this um, kind of civil war um, in Gaza. And then, oh, of course, lo and behold, Hamas wins. Um, and so they take power in June mm-hmm. 2007, um, after which point Israel then imposes a a, 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 a a total land, air and sea blockade on the Gaza Strip, um, which has been unrelenting for the past 16 years. Um, and if you go back and, and look at there was always there were the always the, the IDF would always publish these lists of things you were not able to import into the idea into Gaza, right? Including things like potato chips, obviously cement. You couldn't import coffee or tea. Just just a long list of things that obviously haven't you know. Explain to me how potato chips are a security risk. But basically, they impose this suffocating blockade um, that over the course of the past sixteen years has obviously had dire humanitarian consequences for every last human being living in Gaza. This is not an attempt to suffocate Hamas. This is an attempt to punish the Palestinian civilian population of Gaza, which has, you know, which has led to devastating humanitarian consequences for the past 16 years. Yeah, I I do want to just really quickly come back to the 1991, I think you said, point where the checkpoints can start up and, and, and all this. I guess a lot of our listeners who are not familiar with the history, history will probably be wondering, um, you know, if this kind of came out of nowhere, uh, the checkpoints, like what was the rationale behind it? And um, it, was this, like, do you see a longer term process in Israeli policy, um, you know, that goes, I guess, further than just individual uh, prime ministers or leaders. Do you see this permit regime, for example, 
uh, and the like, obviously the incursion of settlements and things like this into into Palestinian land. Do you see that as like a larger strategy as well um, of of Israel of taking land and kind of making life as difficult as possible? Yes, I, that's absolutely correct. I think you you could basically label this policy in Hebrew. It's known as hafrada separation. I think beginning really in in the aftermath of the first intifada, um, it became obvious to many people in Israel that permanent control over millions of Palestinians, denying them basic rights, denying them the right to have any say in the government or the military that controls their lives, that was untenable. And so then there were different options. And I think the, the option that became most popular in Israel was separation. Um, and, and, and that policy of separation really explains so much of, of what has happened since then. Um, it explains, again, why Palestinians were uh, denied permits to enter into Israel um, beginning in 1991. It explains the entire logic behind the Oslo process, um, uh, <clears throat> which is that you're going to basically allow, um, uh, you're going to create this Palestinian authority and they're going to then have control over Palestinian urban areas. Um, and of course, then explains the construction of the wall beginning in 2003, right? Where we're going to basically build this wall. And, and, the, and the, board, the route of the wall was obviously very political. And, and Israeli military officials have acknowledged that. That's an uncontroversial thing to say. So they build this wall. They want to enclose Palestinians um, into uh, a smaller and smaller areas of the West Bank. Um, they want to... And then, of course, during the Oslo process, the kind of the thinking behind what areas of the, uh, of the West Bank would... Uh, retain would remain in Israeli full Israeli control, and what areas of the West Bank would be acceded to some amount of Palestinian autonomy? Again, it was all based on this policy of separation. Was we're going to take control over the, the uninhabited areas of the West Bank? Right. This is according to the longstanding Israeli vision of we want the land but not the people living on it. And so area mm -hmm. C of the West Bank, which is the area that during the Oslo process, Israel retains full civilian and military control over, area C of the West Bank is 60% of the West Bank, right? It's the entire Jordan Valley. It's the border with mm -hmm. Jordan. It's it's kind of the, the, the area uh, um, bordering Israel, the Green Line. Um, it's basically any area where there aren't Palestinians living and even plenty of areas where there are Palestinians living. Right? There's, uh, I believe it was 80, maybe 90, 100,000 Palestinians living in area C today. Um, but in any case, basically, Israel has this idea of separation, right? So we're going to take control over all the land that doesn't have people on it. And then we're going to push and crowd Palestinians into area, into basically area A, um, which is something like 20% of the West Bank. Um, mm -hmm. And again, it's based on this policy of separation. We, and, and, and then even disengagement, right? Ariel Sharon's 2005 disengagement plan, same basic concept. It was, it doesn't make sense. If we buy into this policy of separation, um, it, it doesn't really make sense for us to have five, six thousand settlers in a land of two point three million Palestinians. Like that makes no sense at all. Um, so let's pull them out and separate. And and what do we do after we separate? We enclose. We lock in. We want to control them because we know that they're going to be upset um, and angry that we're denying them uh, uh, the right to have a say in the government that controls their lives. We know they're going to be angry about that. So we need to lock them in. We need to build a wall around them. We need to prevent them from uh, accessing the coast. We need to impose a blockade and a siege on them. And this has really been, I think, dominant uh, in Israeli thinking for now decades, really, I would say three decades, is we need complete separation for the Palestinians. We want a Jewish state. Um, maybe they can have some kind of Palestinian self-autonomy within the control and the confine of Israeli uh, security domination. Um, and that has really been the guiding principle of Israel for the past 30 years.
a sort of major point of discussion in the discourse around this conflict has been about Hamas as an organization and sort of what their motives are, what their methods are. Um, and they there is a lot of reference to the attack Hamas committed on October the 7th. Um, I'd really like to know from you about sort of what the origins of this organization are, sort of how this developed up until the point of this attack on October the 7th. Yeah, so... First of all, I think it's worth pointing out that Hamas's co-founders were all exposed to gruesome violence as kids, right? Uh, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin was made a refugee when he was 12 or 13. Um, Abdelaziz Rantisi, when he was eight years old, he bore witness to the 1956 massacre in Khan Yunis, where Israeli military went door to door in Khan Yunis on November 3rd, 1956, grabbed every male above the age of 15, lined them up in the city center of Khan Yunis and, and massacred them. So I think it's first of all important to remember that the reason these people uh, uh, grew uh, attracted to resistance in the first place was owing to many traumas they experienced as kids. Um, <clears throat> I think, um, but to, to really understand, I think the, the the radicalization of Hamas from a charity organization, which it was from 1973 uh, to 1987, uh, to a militant resistance group, which it became in 1988 onwards, to understand that transition. I think you need to understand Israel's grotesque violence deployed on Palestinians, many, if not most of them, Palestinian kids during the first Intifada. It was that violence that really radicalized Hamas, right? Because when, when the first Intifada broke out in 1987, uh, on December 8th, uh, uh, you know, the day before Israeli truck driver killed four Palestinians in Gaza, that really led to, was the spark that ignited the first Intifada. But before that, you know, on December 6th, 1987, Hamas was not called Hamas. It was called Al-Mujamma Al-Islami. It was called the Islamic Collective. And it, you know, it operated schools. Uh, it, it funded orphanages. It, it had health clinics. Um, you know, it, it focused on Islamic preaching. Um, it, it was a charity organization. And what happened after the Intifada was that basically this was the most sustained resistance movement, primarily nonviolent resistance movement, to uh, uh, Israel's 20-year-long brutal military occupation. And and Hamas felt a ton of pressure um, to 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 engage in this um, in this nonviolent resistance movement, um, and and I think and so over the course of the first uh, uh, year of that intifada uh, from 1987 December 1987 until December 1988, the Israeli military killed 142 Palestinians in Gaza and suffered zero casualties again because it was a primarily nonviolent revolt. And even even after four years of of of, of uprising uh, from 1987 until 1991. The Israeli military had killed something like 700 Palestinians in Gaza, excuse me, in, the, in Gaza and the West Bank, and had only, again, only only nine Israeli civilians had been killed by that point. It's just a, it just the the, the occupied ter territories turned into a Palestinian slaughterhouse. Every day, Palestinian kids. The front page headline of a newspaper published in Palestine from 1987 to 1991: Two Palestinians slaughtered yesterday. You know, 14 Palestinian kids have their bones broken. Right, it was just fifty-five Palestinians arrested and detained without being told why. It was just a, a, a slaughterhouse. It was just total Israeli brutality. And lo and behold, the organization focused on jihad, focused on peaceful jihad before nineteen eighty-seven, decides to embrace armed jihad after nineteen eighty-seven. I don't think that's a coincidence. It's because of Israel's gruesome violence. And in fact, if you look at statements made by Sheikh Ahmed Yassin in that first year, you know, maybe I can even just pull up one quote here. You have maybe uh, uh, you have a quote uh, uh, from Sheikh Ahmed Yassin himself, um, who says in uh, I believe it was in in the summer of 1988. 
Um, he says, um, so basically he says, in, in May 1988, when asked about uh, uh, Hamas's violent embrace, so this is a, a year after it adopts its charter calling for uh, the creation of an Islamic state in Palestine, um, Ahmed Yassin, the founder of Hamas, says, quote, what is the other alternative available to those who cannot regain their rights by peaceful and nonviolent means? He's saying, we tried nonviolence. All it did was lead to more Palestinian uh, bloodshed. And so he says, basically, the Palestinian people preferred uh, peaceful resistance to violence to achieve its goals. But he said the, the only language the Israeli military understood was force. The Israeli military brought upon them, brought it upon themselves, right? You know, during the first intifada, the Israeli military killed, on average, something like 200 Palestinians every year for six years. In the preceding 20 years, from 67 to 87, they killed on average 32 Palestinians every year uh, for 20 years. So they 10x'd, they literally 10x'd the amount of violence uh, they, they were imposing. on. And what the hell did they expect would happen? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, I mean, it's obviously like important, I think, as, as, um, as a history to understand, because I, I see a lot in the media these days, um, and I think this was kind of propelled to the forefront of mainstream media by mostly Israeli government officials, this sort of um, Hamas-ISIS uh, little portmanteau thing. And and it's, I don't know, it, it always makes me kind of do like a little double take because I, I, I see them try to create this link, right? Because of course, I think, you know, it's been said again and again, but we'll just say it here again, like Hamas's attack did kill and brutally murder civilians like that's been shown and you know that's absolutely unconscionable and, and, and horrible but i think it's it's also absolutely stupid in a even just in let's say academic way to try to understand hamas like just to understand them and what they want through the lens of something like isis which had completely separate different goals uh, objectives and and means also um i think you know could you maybe like tell us i don't know if you've noticed this trend of 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 this uh dual dual name and what you think of it i think people who want you to conflate um hamas and isis are people who don't have any interest in under actually understanding hamas and their origins mm -hmm. um i have not found any uh, serious scholar or analyst or historian or political scientist or academic make that comparison because it's on the face of it it's absolutely absurd right uh hamas uh started as an islamic charity um did isis start as an islamic charity okay uh hamas is a palestinian uh a resistance movement uh uh an indigenous palestinian resistance movement of palestinians comprised 100% of Palestinians, uh, uh, um, you know, whose rank and file is Palestinian, who are trying to liberate uh, Israeli uh, Palestine from Israeli apartheid and Israeli occupation and Israeli siege. Is Hamas a national resistance movement trying to liberate, uh, so, excuse me, uh, is ISIS, ISIS, yeah. uh, is ISIS a, a national resistance movement trying to liberate land that was taken over uh, uh, through armed conflict? And that uh, uh, no, I mean it's just you know it's it's an expansionary caliphate trying to bring about an apocalyptic vision of of humanity's future. It's really it's a very very strange comparison, but I guess it's because they like a lot of people view October seven um, as like uh, in the same way that they viewed 
uh, ISIS's attacks, and for example, in Europe and 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 things like this. I think if your level of sophistication is like, wow, they're both Muslim and they both uh, attack civilians, if that's kind of your level of sophistication about analyzing uh, uh, militant resistance groups, like, okay, I mean, you know, I, I suppose that you could probably teach a, a six or seven year old those two things about Hamas and ISIS. And maybe you could convince a, a six or seven year old that they have a lot in common. But to anyone who has any degree of sophistication, it's just a ridiculous comparison. Exactly my thinking too. I think it, it just doesn't help us to understand the actual problem, right? Like if we were serious about, as let's say the West, if we were serious about combating uh, a form of, of uh, violent militancy like Hamas, for example, we wouldn't if we like we wouldn't be any further in our understanding by doing that by making that conflation comparison um i totally agree it's it's if for its own stated goals i mean of of the so-called west it doesn't make sense uh, just the other thing i'll say here is we, we also know the motivation behind this comparison right it is bibi netanyahu and the israeli military and political establishment that wants the world to believe that Hamas is akin to ISIS, right? We know why the why Israeli political and military leaders say that, because they want to garner sympathy, and they want to create a, a cover and a smokescreen uh, for the aerial bombardment um, of Gaza, for the siege and the, the blockade and and the suffocating of Gaza, for the starvation, uh, for for imposing what Human Rights Watch now calls starvation as a weapon of war. That is what they want to do to Gaza. Mm -hmm. They want. They realize they haven't been able to push Palestinians out of Gaza because Egypt is opposed to that and the United States is opposed to that because apparently at least the United States has some belief that ethnic cleansing is uh, unethical. But basically, because they can't push Palestinians out of Gaza, well, what, what solution do they have left? Well, they, they could starve them all to death, which is exactly what they're doing right now. And that is what the Israel does not want the world to think. They don't want the world to know that that is the goal here. You just starve every last person. I guess if you can't push them into Sinai, you could just starve them all to death. That's one reasonable alternative. Um, and they don't want the, the world to know that that's what they're doing. And they want the world, and so they can, and so they want you to convince if Hamas is ISIS, um, then maybe the world will be uh, more okay with starving to death two million people. Which is uh, just a ever so slightly worse, I guess, than their starvation plus diet that they were. Uh, um imposing on Gaza for, for years as well, where where uh, they calculated, as I, if I can remember correctly, calculated the amount of calories that would go into uh, the Gaza Strip uh, so that they would uh, just about survive, basically. Yeah, um, I think as, as we're slowly reaching the end of this episode, I'd like to give you the chance to sort of, if there are any sort of especially egregious uh, myths or misunderstandings about the history of Palestine or Israel, their conflict, uh, you know, in in a in a popular understanding, um, I, I'd like to give you the chance to sort of raise those uh, now, if you, if any come to mind. If I can make a special request for the for the name of Palestine by the Romans to start with that one, because that's <laughs> one of the like worst ones I've seen repeated so much. Uh, there's there's so much propaganda. Yeah, I mean, well, where to even start? Um, yeah, I mean, you, you hear, I mean, yeah, uh, <clears throat> Scanner, I'm happy to speak to that. And obviously, James, I'm happy to uh, speak to, to other um, myths propagated by uh, Israel supporters. But yeah, this one about the how um, was it that the, the myth that Hadrian, the, the Roman Empire in 135 CE, um, he <clears throat> he vengefully uh, um, erased the name Judea 
and eventually replaced it with the name Palestine in 135 CE um, as part of this, you know, 2000 year long uh, uh, history of anti-Semitism um, that, you know, the Jews have always have and always will face uh, uh, persecution owing uh, because they're Jewish, right? This is part of this narrative that uh, Jews like to tell themselves. And so they've, what they've done is um, they've read incorrectly, at least uh, that's my view. They've read incorrectly into this episode in 135C. And just, just to recount that very briefly, um, the theory that they present, that they present as fact is that um, you know after the Bar Kokhba revolt in 132 um, uh, CE, in which um, this uh, Judean uh, warrior Bar Kokhba, um, uh, you know, he takes over Judea and creates a Jewish kingdom in uh, in what is now the West Bank in in the Judean hills. Um, he creates his kingdom, and by 135, the Roman Emperor Hadrian is so angry and so vengeful at that kingdom that he, you know, after he destroys it. Um, and, and kills all these Jews. Um, he, uh, in order to kind of eventually, you know, in order to to basically like erase the memory of the Jew, uh, of the Judean kingdom, he replaces the name Judea with with Palestina. So even that rendition of the story is itself false. He actually, what historians agree on, is that the inscriptions that begin to appear after 135 CE uh, say the uh, say the name. Um, um, Syria, Palestina, or Syria, uh, uh, Palestinian Syria, rather than Judea. So even this narrative that Palestine was replaced with Syria is false. It was Palestinian Syria is replaced uh, uh, with Judea. So already this idea that he used the name of the Israelites' enemy in the ancient world, the the, 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 the Philistines, he used that name uh, and replaced uh, uh, with Judea. That itself is false. He, he used the name Palestinian Syria, which is not the name of the ancient Israelites' enemies. So that's the first point to say. The second point to say is that Hadrian obviously changed many uh, Greek names in the, uh, 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 sorry, sorry, changed many names of many provinces and cities in the Roman Empire to their erstwhile Greek names because he loved Greek culture and he loved Greek food and he loved Greek customs and he loved Greek etymology. And so he did that, by the way, in many parts the empire outside of uh, of Palestine, so that's so that's an argument for um, not for uh, <clears throat> uh, um, um, that he that's an argument to say he, he explicitly did change the name that there was an imperial decree, um, but that the reason for that imperial decree was not Jew hatred, it was love for Greek culture. But of course, we don't even know Hadrian explicitly changed the name at all. There's no evidence that there was ever any official decree whatsoever. It may well have been the case that it was simply a process of dynamic evolution that after the Judean kingdom was no longer that a new name, the name that actually the the region was already known by before 135 CE, uh, came uh, came to be and and came to be uh, um, kind of the new name that was known after the the Judean kingdom uh, was destroyed. So it, it may well have been the case of dynamic evolution rather than imperial decree. And we have a lot of evidence to support that hypothesis as well, because the name Syria, uh, Syria, uh, Palestinian Syria, is present on a, uh, uh, in uh, uh, chronicles uh, in in many uh, uh, Greek and Roman chronicles. Um, it, that name appears Palestinian Syria as the name of this region, both long before. Uh, a Hadrian putatively changed the name, and long after Hadrian putatively changed the name. And in the absence of any direct evidence that there was an imperial decree, that explanation makes a ton of sense that mm -hmm. the name came to be, that, that the region came to be known as its erstwhile name. Um, so anyways, I mean, that, that's kind of a short answer to, to kind of debunking this myth um, mm -hmm. that, that Zionists love to repeat. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, J James, just to get to your, um, just to answer your question as well, like, oh my God. There's just so much propaganda, like this idea that, you know, Hamas uses human shields. Um, I mean, this is a myth. Actually, uh, it's, it's the Israeli military that um, has been documented over 
and over and over again. In fact, you cannot go a single year uh, between the year 2000, 2001 and 2023. There are documented cases every single year for 22 years of the Israeli military using Palestinians as human shields. And, and the reasons are always obvious. Israeli military is invading Janine. They're invading the Gaza Strip. Um, and what do they do? They don't want to get shot at, so they grab Palestinians and use Palestinians as human shields as they enter Israeli, as they enter Palestinian homes in Janine, as they enter Palestinian homes in Gaza. This is a tried and true Israeli practice, of which we have dozens of dozens of of, of reported examples of. And it's it's so cynical to hear someone like Secretary uh, Anthony Blinken, uh, United States Secretary of State claim in a November 29 speech that it's the Palestinians using human shields when there's like an order of magnitude more evidence that it's actually the Israeli military that does that. So it's just so cynical to hear these kinds of, uh, of propaganda points uh, uh, repeated, especially when they're coming from very, very powerful people uh, like, uh, you know, the Secretary of State, uh, uh, Anthony Blinken. Yeah. And if I can just add also the uh, there is, you know, documented cases of Israeli military buildings and operations uh, operating within civilian centers and surrounded by civilian housing, businesses, etc. So I, I find it kind of bewildering that we expect, like that we have such different expectations um, that like a state occupying apartheid force military is allowed completely and we find it completely normal for them to have their military uh, buildings and operations and things in the middle of civilian centers that's not using human shields but if uh, the palestinians do it then it's automatically like oh my god how dare they have a military center of command or whatever it may be uh, any kind of base of operation within the civilian uh, population like it's there's this dissonance between what we expect of the Israeli and what we expect of the Palestinians. I, I find that really disgusting in, in one and and just bewildering in the in on the other. Um I I just want to maybe quickly touch on um because I, I don't want to keep you too long either, but on, on Bibi on Netanyahu. Um I think you know from the very beginning like people started saying that Netanyahu didn't have a political future. The a lot of Israelis, I think the majority of Israelis, uh, even blamed him for October seven, uh, for the attack on October seven, or at least like a huge amount of people. He lost a lot of political and popular support. Uh, obviously, this was um, compounded by the fact that over the past years he has been uh, trying to turn Israel into a one-man uh, government um, with his, I think, judicial reforms last year, if I remember right. Um, so, so obviously like things for BB have been very, uh, what's the word? It's been a roller coaster for him the past, uh, couple of years. What I was particularly worried about when after October 7, after the Israelis started attacking Gaza in, in order of magnitude higher than normal and with the current ongoing campaign, what worried me really was that precisely because I, I don't know if this is, you know, I'm not an expert on the subject, but I guess from this kind of uh, amateur point of view, what I was really scared about was if Netanyahu still holds office, is not being kicked out of office, but has nothing to lose politically because 
people keep saying left and right that oh he's out he's out he's out as soon as this is over he's out the man has nothing to lose if he's not going to be in Israeli politics if he's not going to be re-elected if he's not going to be able to hold office etc because of his unpopular uh persona now in, in Israel then what does he have to lose like I feel like that's what I'm quite scared of is that Bibi Netanyahu could very well want to like cement his legacy instead of it being October 7 and allowing the biggest Israeli security failure in decades I think that for me what I'm scared of is that he will try to cement his legacy with a final push to get Gaza and possibly the West Bank into Israeli hands like in full and the Palestinians out precisely because he doesn't have anything to lose like he doesn't have to care about the next elections he can just go all out do you feel like this is something that you're worried about as well or do you think this is a fair view i think you're exactly correct netanyahu knows that as soon as the war ends he will be voted out of office because the polling is very very clear on this 80 percent of israelis hold him responsible for october 7th he knows that as soon as the war ends um He's toast. So why should the war ever end? This is going to be a forever war. Israel will never leave the Gaza Strip if Bibi Netanyahu has any control over the matter. That that that's exactly the worry. I think um, I, I I can't I can't see uh, sh short short of uh, Joe Biden telling Bibi the war ends now, and actually putting some real pressure behind that demand and, and 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 real consequences for failing to meet that demand short of that happening i don't think the israeli military is ever going to leave gaza ever mm -hmm. um i think this is a forever war i think they're going to permanently reoccupy the gaza Strip, at least the north i mean you know um maybe even much of the south as well and they'll crowd two million people into i mean you thought gaza was the most densely populated place before october 7 2003 imagine those same 2.3 million people living in an area a fifth of this uh, uh, in, yeah. in, in one tiny corner of the Gaza Strip. And that is basically what is happening in real time as we speak. Yeah, it's looking like just Khan Yunus basically on its own, like housing the that, the entire population. Maybe we can start close off maybe with, by asking you what you, I, I know this is a, a depressing question because there's not much hope on the, on the horizon, but what do you kind of expect will happen seeing everything that has happened in the past couple of months um what were your kind of i guess expectations yeah for for the for the next like for the foreseeable future for gaza for the west bank but also for east jerusalem which you know has been uh, i want to point out has been like completely left out of the conversation and obviously it makes sense the deaths in the, the murders in in uh in gaza or proportionally just ridiculous so of course no one is looking at east jerusalem but um i want to give a, a sort of shout out to what's his name uh, daniel sideman i think his name is who has written a lot about uh the ongoing incursions into east jerusalem for example suffered by the armenian uh community um so yeah i i you know we've heard also a little bit in the media about West Bank and how settlers' violence have been uh, displacing and killing people there as well. What do you view? What's your view of your future of the future of Gaza, of the West Bank and East Jerusalem in the foreseeable future? 
Well, what has happened in the West Bank after October 7th is um, not all that much different than what has happened in the uh, in the West Bank before October 7th. Uh, in 2002, excuse me, in 2022, um, about 1,100 Palestinians were uprooted and ethnically cleansed from their homes in the West Bank. In 2023, more than 1,000 Palestinians have been uprooted and ethnically cleansed from their homes in the occupied West Bank. Uh 2003 is the the most deadly year on record uh, in the West Bank, I think, ever. At this point, it, it, going back all the way to the Second Intifada and e even before that, um, more than 500 Palestinians have been killed in 2023, 300 of whom after October 7th, 200 of whom before October 7th. You know, so, so we're talking about a violent, gruesome occupation in which Palestinians are being slaughtered on a daily basis, multiple Palestinians killed on a daily basis, Multiple communities, we're talking over 10 communities of shepherds, primarily in the in the Jordan Valley, primarily being uprooted and ethically cleansed from their homes in the West Bank over the past year or two. It, it, it's, you know, so, so where is this going? In the wrong direction. Um, we, we saw settlement enterprise explode in the past six months, long before October 7th. You look at the reports uh, um, uh, coming out of uh, Peace Now and uh, of Mahsom Watch, the, 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 these uh, you know these Israeli groups that follow the settlement enterprise very closely, the amount of uh, the settlement expansion uh, was proceeding at a dramatically faster rate in the second half of 2023 than in in the first half. And we are we all we all already know the reasons. It's because of this new government run by Ben Gvir and Smotrich, who are in charge of 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 settlement policy in the West Bank, and they are themselves settlers. And that sells want to themselves want to annex the West Bank and expel every single last Palestinian out of the West Bank. So we we kind of know what is happening in the West Bank, and it's um it's a state of occupation and ethnic cleansing and apartheid and land confiscations and settlement expansion and home demolitions, um and that's just proceeding uh, at 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 a dramatically worse pace than it was before October seventh, um and I don't really see that trend uh, reversing. Um, it's it's incredibly worrying. Um, I think. And in Gaza, you know, it's a sort of, I think we already, we already touched upon this a little bit, but I, again, I, I think the Israeli military is going to permanently occupy at least the north of the Gaza Strip um, and perhaps even much of the south and, um, you know, basically just maintain a, a, a regime of just absolute gruesome brutality where Palestinians are subsisting on nothing. On, and literally starving to death and dying from dehydration on a daily basis. And that is already the reality. And without sustained pressure from uh, the United States, I don't I don't see that changing. So I think the best hope for Gaza's um, uh, for, for uh, a future in which the Gazan people are not um, dying in the hundreds every day uh, from aerial bombardment and from starvation and from dehydration, the best hope is um, is, is, is U.S. pressure. And then in East Jerusalem, um, East Jerusalem, you could say, is basically an extension of the West Bank. Everything that you see mm -hmm. happening in the West Bank is happening in East Jerusalem. Um, I think there are a few particularities, which are that um, you, what happens in Area C of the West Bank is actually probably most akin to what's happening in East Jerusalem, which is an attempt to push them out, pre prevent them from building, right? 97% of applications for building permits in East Jerusalem for Palestinians are denied. Meanwhile... Israel continues to build new Jewish neighborhoods in East Jerusalem, right? Israel, you saw the, and then on top of all that, you have the, the, the suppression of freedom of speech among Palestinians in East Jerusalem, which isn't quite, uh, I think, as bad in the West Bank. 
But because Israel annexed East Jerusalem, and so it, basically these Israelites kind of are, are you know, a sort of permanent residents of the state of Israel, you have dramatic draconian uh, um, uh, censorship. You saw those videos of Israeli uh, military police entering shops in East Jerusalem, grabbing people's phones, uh, uh, asking them to yeah. open up Facebook or Instagram to see what posts they like. We have hundreds of reports of Palestinians being detained and arrested and thrown in prison for liking social media posts that express solidarity with the people of Gaza. That is the level, the draconian level of censorship and, and absurdity that we are seeing inside places like East Jerusalem. Um, so it's, you know, it's it, it, it's an incredibly worrying trend. And, um, you know, I, I would expect the, the draconian policies of censorship um, and of brutality and of violence um, and of ethnic cleansing and of displacement um, uh, to, to continue in East Jerusalem as well. Yeah, I think something that struck me personally, like, as as particularly inhuman was that Palestinians were not even allowed to express their happiness when their children were being released from uh, from administrative detention, pre-trial detention, non-trial detention as well, uh, and and prison uh, as the hostage deals came through and Hamas traded uh, Israeli civilian hostages and and military as well for. Uh, Palestinian um, prisoners and you saw those you know these videos and, and if you haven't I really encourage you to go see them because they are surreal of Palestinians being freed many of them children like children some of them have uh, yes committed you know violent attacks against the settler forces but others have literally thrown stones or have just been put in prison, many of them just for no reason at all, or for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And you see these people, and again, children, coming back to their families, their families who have often not seen them for years. And some of these people and children have been left in solitary confinement illegally for, for periods that are just atrocious. Um, and their minds are just broken from that. And you, you see that, and you see them come home and they're not even allowed to celebrate their coming home. They're not Palestinian joy is outlawed because anyone that, that that was reported, and I think people were even encouraged to report if there were, I think including uh Fatah, I think, or the the Pialo were like encouraged to report if anyone was celebrating, because then they would just be, you know, classified as terrorists and put in jail. And and for me that I don't know that for me particularly like broke me the 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 disallowment of joy is is yeah just no words for that yeah yeah I mean it, you you just just one thought on that look when um Israel didn't want uh to even release and they did not even release the names of the Palestinian prisoners that were uh, released beforehand which was very explicit because they didn't want celebrations they knew that if they released the names you know the families and the family friends of the people who's who are about to be released would congregate and would there would be these big celebrations and you know in, in order to in order to prevent Palestinians from organizing these you know celebrations and that that would obviously kind of 
display uh, Hamas in a more positive light that would indicate that, wow, at least at the very least, even despite all this violence on Gaza, there's been some kind of win for the Palestinian people that at least some of them are celebrating, reuniting with their families. They didn't they wanted to deny Palestinians even that right. And so they didn't even tell say in advance which Palestinians they were releasing from prison. I mean, that was a level that the Israeli military will go to try and win a, a PR award um, against the Palestinians. On that note, I think we, we're going to close off this this episode. I, I do want to maybe really quickly pay homage to the to, to the civilians and, and, and just people who have been murdered in this conflict. Um, I mean, I think now, according to Euromed Human Rights Monitor, so this includes people under the rubble who are thought to be presumed dead um, because they've been stuck in, under the rubble, rubble for so long without help. We're looking at nearly 30,000 people, including 11,000 children almost, 53,000 injuries, uh, nearly 100 journalists killed, nearly 2 million people displaced, 65,000 homes completely destroyed, 175,000 homes partially destroyed. This includes 300 schools, um, 176 mosques, four churches, and 23 hospitals and 56 clinics. These numbers are just staggering, especially for 76 days of of uh, of war. It's just, I, yeah, I, I don't think we have ever seen that in our lifetime, um, uh, at least not so explicitly and not so like in our face, I guess, um, or at least in my adult life. And yeah, I just want to, again, express like solidarity with the Palestinian people and and their struggle for just basic decency and dignity and freedom. And also our thoughts obviously go to everybody who has lost family members and dear ones and and, and loved ones uh, in this. And again, thank you so much, Zach, for, for coming on the show. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have learned quite a bit today. Um, thank you for the work you do and for continuing that work through. I know it's, <laughs> I know it must be quite tiring to, to have to often repeat the same points also, but I do believe that the work you're doing does change minds and does inform. And I do believe that that changing of minds and information does lead people to take action. And so I think, you know, your work is definitely part of this web of work that we all must do uh, for to strive for the liberation and, and freedom and dignity of Palestine. So thank you. Thank you for saying that, Skander, and thank you so much for, for hosting me uh, on the pod. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much, Zachary.